Friends, join me in going to the Lord in prayer one more time before we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as been, has been said a few times already today, may we never take it for granted that we can call you Father. May we be mindful of the fact that it is only because of Christ and because of your grace and mercy and love that we could call you that. We praise you and thank you that you have given us a spirit of adoption and not a spirit of fear. We are here for your glory and we are here because we need you. And so we pray quite simply, Father, that you would come and that you would minister to us now in the power of your Holy Spirit as we look to your word. So come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, we are on our way in the Gospel of Mark, making our way through this book. We are in particular on our way, and we're getting quite close to a very important part of the book in chapter 8, where we will see Peter, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, one of the, the 12 inner circle guys that spent a lot of time with Christ during his earthly ministry. We're going to see Peter confess that Jesus is the Messiah. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, the gospel writer has continually been pointing us to the identity of Jesus. He has been pointing us over and over to the ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises of redemption. He has, in one sense, been preparing us for Peter's confession that is coming soon in Mark chapter 8. At that point, once Peter in 829 confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. The work and ministry of Christ will be described by Mark in more explicit terms. In our text today, we're still in this kind of earlier portion of Mark's gospel where he continues to just point us to the realities of who Jesus is without directly saying, without anybody in the text directly saying that Jesus is the Messiah. But we're going to see today from chapters 7 and 8 of Mark's gospel that Christ's identity and his mission is unmistakable. He is the promised savior of the world. We're going to see his ministry repeatedly in this text today overflow the boundaries of the covenant community of Israel. And it's going to flow out into even the Gentile world, which many of us sitting here this morning, most of us, if not all of us, are of Gentile heritage. So we say amen that it has always been God's plan through Jesus Christ to save the nations. That is our hope, and that's why we're here today. If you have your Bibles, I hope that you do. Open them up to Mark chapter 7 and verse 24. We're going to be looking at a big chunk of Mark's gospel today from chapter 7 and verse 24 through chapter 8 and verse 26. We're looking at large sections of Mark's gospel at points to help us grasp this main emphasis of Mark's gospel. Who is Jesus? So lest we get mired in the weeds, we're looking at large sections at times to help us see more clearly who Jesus is and what he came to do. So if you don't have a Bible with you today, don't sweat that. We'll get the verses to the text up here on the screen. But before we spend any more time talking or looking at what the text might mean, let's read it together. Listen now as I read God's word. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, 
heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmunatha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Amen. 
Thanks be to God for his word. I have four points for us today. Uh, it's a number of verses that we're going to cover, and we're going to try to do them under these four headings. Point number one, sermon title, essentially. Jesus is the Savior of the world. I know that you love me for my creativity. Number one, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And just a quick note in terms of what I mean when I say Savior of the world, I mean Savior of the Jews and the Gentiles. Savior of all people, in other words. That's what I mean by world. We're going to start by looking at this account in verses 24 through 30 in the seventh chapter of Mark's gospel concerning this Gentile woman, this woman from Syrian Phoenicia or Syro-Phoenicia, as the text says. Put your eyes there in verse 24. We see that Jesus has gone into the region of Tyre and Sidon. He has entered into Gentile country. He enters into a house. He's trying to remain somewhat veiled and hidden, but yet he could not be hidden. Immediately a woman we see in verse 25, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And then we're told in verse 26 that this woman was a Gentile. So she begs Jesus in verse 26 to cast the demon out of her daughter. And then Jesus gives an answer that's somewhat surprising and a little bit kind of like, hey, what's he even talking about here with this analogy? What does he mean? He says to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Just a few words on that response. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 15, we have a a parallel account where Jesus is interacting with a Canaanite, a Gentile woman. The same thing. This woman comes and asks that her daughter might be healed of the demon that is oppressing her. And Jesus responds in Matthew's gospel with these words. He says to his disciples, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he came, Jesus is clear in his ministry, and we see this in other places in the New Testament. We'll reference some of those. He is the savior of the world. And at the same time, it's right to say that he came first to the Jews. He came first to the house of Israel. And then from Israel, from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, the gospel would spread. Think about Romans 1.16 in the beginning of Paul's great letter where he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the power of God to everyone who believes, that's everyone meaning everyone, but then he qualifies that. He gives us more clarity. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. This is the pattern of the New Testament. In Matthew 22, even, Jesus tells another parable there, the parable of the wedding feast, as it is known, where there's a king who is throwing a great wedding banquet, and he has invited a certain group of people. Many within that invited group do not come to the feast. So the king looks to his servants and says, go out into the main highways and invite everybody so that my banquet may be full. The point being there, the same thing, that God had for millennia dealt almost exclusively with the people of Israel, this nation whom he had chosen. But then through Israel, his plan was always to save people from every tribe, every language, every nation. So we see this even in Christ's response. He says to this woman, I came first to the house of Israel, to the children. And it's not right that the children would be deprived and then I would give food to 
the dogs, the household pets, as it were. But then let's look at her answer in verse 28. Her answer is remarkable. She says to him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Remarkable response. In terms of the understanding that it demonstrates and also just the posture towards Christ that it demonstrates. Yes, Jesus, what you're saying is true. And yet at the same time, it's also true that the dogs, the household pets, eat the scraps that fall from the table. That's all I'm asking for. And then Christ responds in verse 29 and says to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home, verse 30, and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. In Matthew's account of this interchange, Jesus marvels at this woman's faith. He says in Matthew 15, 28, O woman, great is your faith. And he heals her daughter. But not just this. This is one Gentile woman and her daughter to whom Jesus ministers. But there are going to be more people in this passage from Mark's gospel who are not Jews to whom Jesus will minister. In the very next section, we're not going to look at it in detail just yet, verses 31 to 37, Jesus is in the Decapolis. This, again, is an area that would have been a very mixed area in terms of its population. There would have been Jews who lived there, but many Gentiles as well. And so he goes into the region of the Decapolis, and he's going to heal a man who was deaf and mute. Now, we're not told whether that man was a Jew or a Gentile. The text is silent on that. But we can be certain that at least many of the onlookers who would have witnessed this and would have seen this man who couldn't speak before and couldn't hear, they would be like, okay, this guy hears now and he speaks now. Many of those witnesses would have been Gentiles. And then also we go on in chapter 8 and verse 1, in those days when Jesus is still in this area populated by both Jews and Gentiles, he is going to miraculously feed a crowd. So we're going to think about this in a moment. Before, in chapter 6, he fed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children who were Jewish. And now in this text, he's going to feed another large crowd that are mixed Jew and Gentile. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, when Joseph the earthly father of Jesus, not his father by blood, is being told by the angel of the Lord about his son who will be born. This is how the angel speaks to him. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Jesus would save his people from their sins. Praise be to his name. Now, but who are those people? Are they just Jews? Luke's gospel, chapter 2, in verse 25 and following. You can turn there if you like. The answer to that question is no. His people are not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Luke 2.25 and following. Jesus is being presented at the temple in Jerusalem as a baby. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up in his arms and blessed God. He took him up, excuse me, the baby Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He is a savior of both Jew and Gentile. In the book of Acts, chapter four, you can also turn there if you would like. Verse eight and following. Just a brief word about what's going on here. A lame beggar had just been healed the day before by Peter and John. Peter and John have been put in custody and they're now standing before the council of the rulers, the elders, and the scribes. What are they going to say? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the definite article, savior of the world, Jew and Gentile. It is the clear testimony and witness of the scripture. This brings us to our second point for our consideration today. Point number one is that Jesus is the savior of the world. Point number two, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises of redemption. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises of redemption. So the nations, we've already considered this, people from every tribe and language and nation would come to God through the promised offspring of Abraham, namely Jesus. So when we think in Genesis chapter 12, when God tells Abraham that the nations would be blessed through him, we know from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16 that that promised offspring through whom the nations would be blessed is none other than the Christ, the Lord Jesus who would come. We see illustrations throughout our text today in Mark's gospel of those redemptive realities that the nations are going to come to God not just Israel, the nations will come to God and they will come to him through his Christ in no other way. We've seen already in the, the account of the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter, we've considered the people of the Decapolis and the miraculous healing that's taking place. We're going to think more about that now. And we're going to think more about the miraculous feeding that took place amongst this mixed assembly of people. So let's look at the healing of this deaf and mute man in more detail. Let's pick it up at verse 32. So we're in the region of the Decapolis and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd privately. It's just an intimate setting. He puts his fingers into his ears and he spits and touches his tongue. Remember that this man can't hear, right? So he can't really even speak. So this is almost a, a visual parable of sorts, right? Jesus puts his fingers in the man's ears. I'm going to unstop your ears, spits and touches his tongue. I'm going to loosen your tongue now. And he looks to heaven because that's where the power is coming from. 
right? And he's going to release this man from these handicaps that he has been dealing with. Verse 34, he looks up to heaven. Jesus sighs and says to the man, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And it happens. Verse 35, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. When Jesus sighs, just a brief observation in verse 34, when he sighs and looks up to heaven, it seems to me in in reading the text uh, that this is a beautiful picture of the compassion of Christ and the compassion of God toward fallen man. God has ordained sin. He has ordained the fall. He will save his people. And at the same time, God is not some distant despot up in the heavens just sort of laughing at us as we suffer. He is the furthest thing from that. He is a kind and merciful and compassionate God, even as Jesus here sighs over the wreckage that the fall has produced. And this is why he has come, to reverse the effects of the curse, right? It's what we sing about in Joy to the World. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's why he's on the scene. Just a brief observation there for you. In verse 37, the witnesses, the people who have seen this happen, the fact that this man now speaks and he can hear and he couldn't before, they're astonished beyond measure, the text says. And they say of Jesus, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. No small matter. On making the deaf hear and the mute speak, two just brief observations for you here. Like lest we just kind of glaze by it because Jesus is awesome and he does a lot of miracles. Like let's just think together for a moment. The first thing that we could say about Jesus making the deaf hear and the mute speak is that it testifies to his identity as none other than Yahweh, the Lord. If you think about Exodus chapter four, This is right after the account of the burning bush when the Lord appears to Moses that way and calls Moses in one sense to be the deliverer of his people. Moses tells the Lord, I I can't do that. I've got a speech impediment. And God responds, Exodus 4.11. Then the Lord said to Moses, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It's pretty remarkable. Jesus shows up on the scene and is enabling a mute man to speak and is enabling a deaf man to hear. This is not normal. He is the Lord. Second observation that we could make about this, that he has made the deaf hear and the mute speak, is that he is the Christ, the Messiah. If we think about what the prophets foretold of the day of the Lord when the Christ would come, When the Savior would come, think of the words of the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6. You don't need to turn, just listen. The prophet says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So when we start to see these things happening in the earthly ministry of Christ, this is the significance of that, that he is the Messiah, the promised one. Let's move forward now and consider this feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Remember, we're still considering the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises of redemption. The first feeding, as I already mentioned, which took place in chapter 6 and verse 30 and following, 
it was amongst a Jewish assembly. And we considered together that day how that feeding in all of its circumstances, a will, feeding people in the wilderness with bread from heaven and then miraculously crossing a body of water pointed to Christ as the greater Moses, as the one who would accomplish the greater exodus on behalf of God's people. Well, here in this feeding today, the gospel writer is going to point us to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and the fulfiller of all of God's promises of redemption. This trajectory of redemptive history towards the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be a people from every tribe and language and nation around the throne of God. Jesus is the one who is going to make that a reality. Mark is going to point us that way. Whereas before, when there were baskets of food taken up, there were 12 left over. 12 being the number of the tribes of Israel, also the numbers of the apostles, the new Israel that was being built out of them. This time, there are seven baskets left over. Also not a coincidental number. The number seven in scripture is a number that represents completeness, fulfillment, and perfection. So we have Jesus here miraculously feeding a mixed assembly of Jews and Gentiles with bread from heaven and seven, the number seven, perfection, completeness, fulfillment, is the number of baskets taken up. All of this, if you skip ahead to verses 17 through 21, Jesus is going to talk with his disciples there. We'll consider this more in detail later. The disciples are worried about not having enough bread in the boat when they cross the water. And Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they then resume talking about bread, about how they don't have enough bread. And then Jesus, verse 17, is like, why are you talking about bread, fellas? Why are you talking about bread? Like, don't, do you not yet understand what in the world's going on here? There's more. In other words, Jesus is pointing to the reality that these miraculous feedings have a lot more to do than just a miraculous feeding. As cool as that is, like making bread and fish just like multiply supernaturally. It's awesome, but there is a point to what he's doing. His miracles are not just kind of like throwing spaghetti against the wall and let's see what sticks. He is purposeful in everything that he does. So that's what Mark is pointing us to. This feeding of a mixed assembly of Jew and Gentile even looks forward to the establishment of the church where the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile is torn down and Jew and Gentile alike would gather in the assembled church to be fed the word of God. So even what we're doing today is pointed to in this reality where Jesus is feeding his people. But ultimately, what this feeding is pointing to is what would one day happen in the Father's kingdom through the work of Christ. So this is how we read our Bibles. We read them according to the trajectory and the story of redemptive history. We don't take passages in isolation and just read them as though they occur in a vacuum. We read them as a part of the great story that God is telling. And we know where the story ends. New heavens, new earth, all kinds of people around the throne of God forever, feasting with the Lord in joy and peace forevermore. That's the end of the story. This points to that. People from every tribe and language and nation would gather even for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 5, lest you have to take my word for this, where is the story of redemption heading? 
And when he, the lamb, Jesus, had taken the scroll, I mean, this is end of history stuff, guys. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne on the, on the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So, am I saying that in Mark chapter 8, in this feeding of these people, you should see Revelation 5? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Then I heard, this again is John writing the book of Revelation. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What great scenes those are. What wonderful scenes those are. And the greatest news in the world is it for everybody who trusts in Christ, we will be a part of that. These scenes are the trajectory of the Bible. They're the trajectory of redemptive history, and they are where we saints are headed. That reality with God forever, seeing Jesus as he is forever, sitting down to table and eating with him forever with one another is our hope. It is our hope as we are exiles and sojourners in this life. All the saints through history are pilgrims on our way to the celestial city. It's good for us. It's good for us as we live life in this fallen world to look to Scripture and behold what the Lord Jesus came to do and be reminded of the fact that He has done it and that He is the one who will bring us into these wonderful, glorious scenes at the end of history. This matters for our Tuesday and our Wednesday and our Thursday. Like, don't tell me this isn't practical. Hebrews chapter 11. Think about your life as a sojourner and a pilgrim and an exile. When the writer of the Hebrews describes Old Testament saints, he said, these died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, namely Canaan, if that had been the point, they would have had the opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's where we're headed. And we see this in these realities in the earthly ministry of Christ. He comes to accomplish the redemption of God's people so that we might know, hey, that's where we're going. Why does this matter for your Wednesday and your Thursday and your Saturday afternoon? It's because there are good things in life, because God is good and gracious. But if you're anything like me, you're often gripped by how the good things do not endure in this life. Nothing stays the same. Good things don't last. And you don't have to struggle with anxiety like some of us do to feel that. You realize that things are good today, but they might not be good tomorrow. Times of joy end and sorrow comes. And life, let's just be frank, can be really hard this side of eternity. I'm looking at a room of people and there are so many things going on in this small church even right now that are hard, like really hard. I mean, not just like, oh, well, that's, that's tough, but like, like heartbreaking, gut-wrenching hard. Not only our circumstances, but every one of us feels, I trust, the weight of our own corruption, the battle against sin will wear you out. It can be so discouraging. You want with all your heart to obey God. And yet you find it not happening nearly as often as you want it to. So brother, sister, saint in the room, the question, where is your hope? From where does your hope come? This book is about your redemption and mine through Jesus, all to the praise of God's glorious grace. This book tells the story of redemption through Christ to the praise of God's glory, and that, namely, is our hope. Jesus came to accomplish the covenant of redemption that the Father and the Son had made together before the world began. Think Ephesians chapter 1, which we'll be hearing from in a number of weeks, about how God, before the world began, the Father and the Son covenanted together that they would save a people, and Jesus would come to accomplish that redemption. And what's amazing is when we read about the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ, what's happening is that that plan from eternity past is actually coming to pass in time and space. The promised one, God the Son incarnate, who would save his people, has showed up to do it. And he wouldn't just come and make the salvation of his people possible. He wouldn't just come and make the salvation of his people hypothetical. He wouldn't just come to make his people savable. He would come to save us. He accomplished redemption. And then it would be applied, yes, to our lives by the Holy Spirit of God. The beautiful thing about the way the Bible tells the story of redemption is that those whom the Father has chosen out of his grace and love the Son atones for and purchases, provides them with righteousness, and the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to the saint by faith. It is a remarkable story of what God has done 
This book fundamentally, when it comes to our eternal salvation and how it will happen, it is about the work of God, not the work of you. Now, will you do good works? Yes, because you have been called to them and they have been prepared beforehand for you to walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Namely, what I'm saying, more pointedly, I should say, what I'm saying is that Jesus saves sinners. We'll sometimes talk in terms of we're saved by faith. And what we mean, just to be very clear, let me start with what we don't mean. We do not mean that faith itself saves people. Nobody has ever been saved by faith for the sake of faith. We are saved by Jesus. And it is faith that is the means, the mechanism, the vehicle through which the merits and righteousness of Jesus are applied to wretched sinners like you and me. So it's good that we would understand what Jesus showed up to do in his earthly ministry. He has done it not for our glory, but for his own glory to the praise of God the Father. The work is finished. All that's left is for us to trust him. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is Christ. Our hope is the new heavens and the new earth with God forever through Christ. Another sweet thing about eternity will be the fact, too, that we'll be with each other forever. I don't know if you've thought about that. If you're like me, you feel this sense of grief whenever you have to leave people that you love and care for, whether that's friends from out of town or visiting and you depart, or even just sometimes even people who are local that you just don't get to see them as much as you want, whatever. And it's like, man, there's such a sweetness of being together. It's such a good thing to be together. And then we always have to leave each other. And it pulls at your heart. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more separation. There will be no more leaving good things. There will be no more grief. There will be no more dying. There will be no more pain. No more suffering. All because of Christ. He has won the day. He has secured our eternity and God, we're told, has prepared for us a city. So when your life is falling apart around you, which I trust you have felt recently and maybe will again soon. When you don't want to do anything on your calendar, you look at your calendar and you either want to ball your eyes out or throw it out the window. When the test results are bad again. When difficulty and hardship just won't let up or you're like, man, I can't remember the last time I caught a break in life. If there's something that's going to matter for you in those moments, it's this hope through Christ, because of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth with God forever. That's where we look. We live from eternity backwards. And it's important that we acknowledge this. This hope is the furthest thing from cliche. This hope is the furthest thing from cute. And let's be clear. The hope of heaven and the hope of Christ does not take pain away. It does not take pain away. It gives us a filter to push pain through. It gives us lenses through which to look at pain and suffering. And it tells us that pain is not the end of the story. That there's a glory that awaits us that is beyond our comprehension. And we will have it because of Jesus. As a good friend and hip-hop artist once said, keep your anecdotes and cute quotes. I'll pass on cliches for true hopes, to which we would say amen.
Point number three. Opposition to Jesus is rooted in unbelief. Point number three. Opposition to Jesus is rooted in unbelief. Now, point two is by miles the longest, just to make everybody comfortable and let some air out of the room. Let's look now at verses 11 and following in chapter 8. We're going to see there that the Pharisees come to Jesus, and in particular, they demand a sign from him in verse 11. The Pharisees, as well as the Herodians, Jesus is going to reference them later. Remember, they have just been in opposition to Jesus throughout the entire course of his ministry. They, in large part, are why he's having to be hidden so much. And he's having to kind of go off the grid because they are seeking to destroy him and kill him. So the Pharisees, verse 11, come to Jesus. They begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven in order to test him. He's not legitimate. We want a sign from heaven. Prove to us that you are who you say you are and the like. Jesus, again, in verse 12, sighs. He sighs deeply in his spirit and says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given. This sigh is a different one than the one we considered a minute ago. This is a sigh of deep emotion as well, but it would be frustration, indignation even, at unbelief and the kind of opposition that he encounters at the hands of the Pharisees. They're asking for, the irony here is that they're asking for a sign. And it's like, my gosh, the whole life and ministry of Christ is the sign. So in that sense, when he says a sign won't be given, he's just saying, look, it's plain as day already for those who have eyes to see who I am. Then we see he gets in the boat, verse 13. They go over to the other side. We pick it up there in verse 14. Now they, the disciples, the group with Jesus, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And then Jesus cautions them. He says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod or the leaven of the Herodians. And then the disciples begin discussing again together. They resume their talk about bread. Let's not be too hard on them, right? We would do the same. They don't have complete understanding yet. Jesus tells them that a little bit of yeast, you know, this is, he says this elsewhere, a little bit of yeast affects the whole lump of dough. That's why he brings the yeast up. What is the yeast he's talking about? The yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven, excuse me, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. He's talking about their unbelief. He's talking about their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Beware of that, lest it contaminate everything. Jesus is warning his disciples about the yeast of unbelief that will affect every area of one's life. It's clear that the disciples do not know what he's saying because there in verse 16 and following, they resume their discussion about bread. Jesus then is going to drive at that matter. Aware of this, verse 17, he says to them, why are y'all still talking about bread? Do you not yet understand what the world's going on in my ministry and even in these feedings? Are your hearts hardened? Verse 18, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And then he goes through the two feedings that he had performed. He asks them about the 5,000 and how many baskets they'd taken up. He asks them about the 4,000 and how many baskets they had taken up. And he asks them, do you still not yet understand? The realities that we've been talking about even today, and we talked about a few weeks ago what these feedings are about. And clearly the disciples do not yet understand. In all of this conversation about faith and belief and beware of the 
leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod and their unbelief. It's right that we would consider very briefly together the fact that faith in Jesus is always the fundamental matter of the Christian life. It does not get more basic than that. Faith in Christ is always ground zero, always. Faith to take God at his word, faith to cling to God's promises, faith to heed God's warnings, faith to trust Jesus and rest in his love for the saints, faith to believe that Jesus is enough when your conscience and everything around you is telling you otherwise. Objections are sometimes raised when we herald the gospel about being saved by Jesus, grounded in the grace of God through the mechanism of faith, apart from any work that we could ever do. People say, well, surely, bro, it's, it's about more than faith. It can't, can't be that easy, can it? I would respond to that the way that Martin Luther did. Who said that faith is easy? Seriously, who said faith is easy? Biblically speaking, it's actually impossible. Like if you want to go there, I mean, think about all the different texts in Scripture that make it quite clear that in and of ourselves, we could never have faith in Christ. Think even about the account of the rich young man who comes to Jesus thinking that he can obey his way to heaven. And Jesus tells him, in order to have eternal life, you need to keep God's commandments. And the young man says, well, I've done that. And Christ just turns the temperature up on him, turns the full weight of the law and dumps it on him. Tells him you still lack something, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, follow me. And the man leaves crushed by that demand. The disciples watch that go down and they say, Jesus, who in the world can be saved? What does he say? With man, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. Faith is not easy. Faith is not natural. In the midst of trying circumstances, when our consciences rightly accuse us, trusting Christ can feel like the hardest thing in the world. When Satan accuses us, tempts us to despair, right? Trusting Christ can be hard. When our lives are falling apart, trusting Christ is not easy. Faith in Christ, friends, is always the fundamental battle. Beware of unbelief. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Point number four. Point number four, Jesus teaches his disciples through healing a blind man. Jesus teaches his disciples through healing a blind man. So we're going to look now at verses 22 through 26 as we conclude our time. We could call this healing here the two-touch healing if we wanted to be clever. Um, but I don't know that we want to do that. Jesus, remember, said in verse 18 to his disciples, having eyes, do you not see? Any eyes do you not see? Do you not understand? They're going to have a very visual parable in the healing of this man. The disciples, that is. Of course, the man benefits. The blind man benefits directly from the healing of Jesus. But this healing is also for the benefit of the disciples. They had some spiritual understanding, but they lacked a lot of spiritual understanding as well. That's clear. Let's look at what happened. They came to Bethsaida, verse 22, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? 
And then he looks up and says, I see men. We would presume that's the disciples around. I see men, but they look like trees walking. So his vision is not yet clear. Sees something, but not everything. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything. Okay, we're dealing with Jesus here. This two touches was on purpose. Okay, like it's not like, oh, well, this is like a really difficult case of blindness and Jesus couldn't quite pull it off with one touch. That's not what's happening, right? Had Christ wanted to heal this man with one touch, he could have done that as he had done many times before. And as we will hear about him doing again with Bartimaeus in chapter 10. So then the question is, why did he touch this man's eyes twice? And why did it go down the way that it did? Where the first touch, he saw something, but not everything clearly. And the second touch, he sees everything clearly. This is why I say that this is a parable for the disciples. Do you not yet understand? Do you have eyes and not see? Jesus is pointing his disciples to the fact that their spiritual sight was something that he would continue to give them. It wouldn't come all at once. They had begun to understand some things. Peter, just a few verses later, is going to confess Jesus as the Christ. It's a big deal. That's some sight. But then they would still have a lot to learn. I mean, think about Peter even. I mean, we'll think about this together next week. He pretty much immediately after confessing Jesus as the Christ, rebukes Jesus for talking about his death and his resurrection that would happen in Jerusalem. So clearly, the understanding was coming in stages, not all at once. This, just like for the disciples, this is true for you and me. Now we're born again legitimately at a point, right? And at that point, we are in Christ, counted righteous, We have all the righteousness we'll ever need. And then we will be sanctified. We will grow. We will be taught. We will have our minds renewed. We will be transformed. Having already been saved, we will be taught of God by his spirit through his word. We're constantly seeing things more clearly. I mean, that's the testimony of every person in this room. It's mine. My goodness. I've been a Christian for a while now. I'm getting older, but I think about various points in my life where I have learned things that have been massive in terms of my understanding of the gospel and the Christian life, and I'm sure many in the room would say the same. It's only God, just like here with Jesus, he is the only one who can give this man sight. That is true for us in a spiritual sense, and we all see the bug flying. Um, Only God is the one who can cause this to happen, just as Jesus was the only one who could heal this man in our text today. Just a couple of thoughts for you as your pastor, as your brother in Christ, as your friend. Your growth in knowledge and understanding, your maturation in knowing and learning the things of God is, first of all, a process. It's a process. So be patient. That means be patient with yourself, but also be patient with others. Sometimes we're not patient with ourselves or sometimes we come to understanding at a point in our lives and we think, oh my gosh, if I'd only understood this 20 years ago or if I'd only understood this two years ago. It's like, well, those things are not ours to know and understand fully. 
Be patient with ourselves as we learn and grow. And then be patient with other people. Be patient with your brothers and sisters in the faith. We ought not bludgeon one another to death with theology. Theology is meant for doxology, for worship, for praise. It's meant for rest and peace. I'll even say it this way. Our church is reformed. Not ashamed to say that at all because it's what we are. And it's been said through history that reformed theology is a pillow to lay on and rest on, not a sword to kill people with. That matters a ton. It's a pillow to rest on, not a sword to kill people with. Be patient with people as we wrestle and struggle with the truth of God together as a church. But not only is your growth and your learning and your maturation a process, it's also, secondly, certain. It is certain. So take heart. It's a process to so be patient. It is certain, so take heart. God will do these things in your life. He will teach you. He will renew your mind. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's going to happen. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's certain. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. That would include growth and understanding, one would think. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen, right? Thanks be to God for Christ, for the gospel, and for his spirit, for his word. All these wonderful things that he has given us, even as he works in our lives to transform us and teach us and grow us. And praise God for the church, that we get to do this together, not by ourselves. Let's thank God and go to him in prayer now. Our Father, we do come to you thanking you for all of these wonderful gifts that you have given, most of all for Jesus and for the redemption that he has secured for us. But thank you for your Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. Thank you for giving us your word so that we wouldn't have to wonder about what's true. Thank you for guiding us according to your word. Thank you for using your good law to crush us and drive us to Christ. In addition to your word, Father, we thank you for giving us the Lord's table. On the night that Jesus died, he instituted this to be done in remembrance of him whenever we do it. We thank you for the body of Jesus crushed for us. We thank you for the blood of Christ that is the blood of the new covenant through which we can have and will have redemption and heaven forever with you. Continue to minister to us by your spirit as we turn to take the Lord's Supper together now. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen.